0: You may be seated. Before you stand up and open God's word, it's really good to to sing, Lord, I need you. And then be thou my vision right before you open God's word. (laughs) If you would pray with me to that end as we open God's word together. God, we thank you that you meet us in your word through your spirit, that you come and you guide and you teach that you correct us, that you encourage us. I pray this morning that you would do that through your word, through your spirit, leading and guiding us in all things. I pray for each person here that you have ordained to be here today, to hear your word as we open it together. We pray that you would lead, that you would guide, you would apply the truth of your word to our hearts, that we would see it uh, more clearly, that we would see how we need you and what you're doing and the ways that you're calling us to live that out. I pray that uh, Uh, The meditations of my heart would be clear today, that they would be uh, faithful to the text and to your word, and that it would be pleasing and honoring in your sight. We thank you that we have this time. We thank you that we have this place that we can gather together freely to proclaim your name. I thank you for your people that you've called here together today. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I think I've said this this many times, multiple times, or at least I I feel like I have... Uh, I've read this a lot in different places. Sociologists will say that we live right now where we are in the most individualistic society in the history of the world. Uh, Maybe you've heard me say that. I went and kind of looked, and there's a lot of studies and statistics and things that point us to that, that that being true. I was thinking about that this week. I went and visited my parents last weekend in Texas, and they live in an old house in a very old neighborhood, uh, most of these houses were built between the 1930s and the 1950s. They actually live in a house that my great-grandfather designed and built uh, many, many years ago. And But what struck me as I walked down the street and I looked at their neighborhood and I looked at their house, what I saw was each one of those houses, almost to, uh, every single one of them as you walk down the street, had great big cool front steps that came up, came down to the street, uh, big sidewalk, all lined. And it led to a beautiful front porch that was huge. My parents have a front porch that's like 10 feet wide. It runs the whole length of the house. And that's not uncommon. Almost every single house is that way. And I thought about that. It struck me because as I drove back into my neighborhood this week and what you see is every house has a front-facing garage with no front porch. Uh, Almost all of them have fences around it. And instead of a front porch, we have a great big deck on the back. And you might say, well, yeah, okay, whatever, right? Well, my undergraduate degree was in architecture. You even take a class on the psychology of architecture, all those kind of things. And basically what it says is we like to drive in and shut the garage door and go in the backyard, right? We're the most individualistic society in the history of the world. That's the way we operate. Whereas 100 years ago, you sat on your great big front porch with a welcoming front step that people came and you spent that time together. And we've seen that shift even just in the last 100 years in the way we build buildings. If you look further in our society, you see it all around us, the rise of social media. We can project who we want to be. We can tell people about ourselves. We can kind of develop these faux relationships. If I can put pictures online and you kind of see what my life is like, but we don't really have any relationship together at all. Or I can go online and tell you all my thoughts and my feelings and my whole world can revolve around what I think and feel and see and look at, and you can read those things, and we can kind of have this weird, fake relationship. But in a lot of ways, it just centers around what I want you to know about me. You start to think about those kind of things. Or you look at the church today, specifically in America. We've had huge, uh, great big churches rise up. Nothing against big churches. That's not a, That doesn't mean a big church is bad in any way. But one of the things that we've found, and they will say... Uh, that's appealing about a great big megachurch is you can slip in and slip out and never have to talk to anybody. I've actually heard people tell me that. I go there because I can get in and get out and nobody bothers me and I don't really have to have any real connection and I can just go in. I can be part of something that's bigger than me. I can sing together and we can lift our voices, but then I can slip out and not have to be bothered. I can get to the restaurant early so I don't have to wait in line, right? And so you see those things All around us, it's kind of our experience in the way that we operate. But when I think of things like social media or Facebook in particular, it's become wildly popular. I think in that, even though we see this kind of weird thing happening in our society, there's a desire for deeper relationships, right? I want you to know something about me. I'm going to show you pictures of my family and my kids and what I did and those kind of things. I just want you to know it on my own terms. But I think there's a desire there to actually have deeper relationships. But it's uncomfortable a lot of times. To actually you go really deep with somebody, they have to know about you. And once they start to know about you, they're going to realize that you don't have it all together. And so that's difficult. So the question I want us to ask this morning as we go into Hebrews 10, as we go back into Hebrews that we've been walking through together, is this, what did God design us for? What are we meant for when he made us in his image? And he put us on this earth. What does it look like? And I think you can go back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter two. And I'm not going to go through this whole thing, but just as setting the scene for Hebrews 10. And there's two really uh, incredible things that pop up in Genesis chapter two. One of them is that God creates everything and he orders the earth and he puts man on the earth before sin enters, before anything has gone awry, before man has decided to rebel against God. There's one thing that God says is not good. You know what that is? If you've read Genesis 2, he says it's not good that man would be alone. And so he causes a deep sleep to come over the man and he forms the woman out of the man and he presents her to him. And he says, this is very good. This is the way it's supposed to be. And so what you have in Genesis 2 right there at the end of the chapter is this incredible picture that we were made to walk in close relationship with God, open, fully knowing him, walking in a relationship with him, But he also made people that we would know and walk in full relationships with other people. And you get to the end of Genesis 2 in the way God originally intended. And it says, and the man and the woman were there and they were naked and they were not ashamed. I want you to think about what that picture means. Not just that they're physically naked, but that they're out there open in a full relationship together and they're not hiding anything. And you see this picture before sin enters of the way God ordered the world. And so I want us to think about that idea that we were made for deep relationships with God and with others. In fact, Jesus would summarize all the laws that he would give us. The Ten Commandments hinge on those two things. Love God and love other people. That's the way he made it. That's the way he ordered us. And so when we get to Hebrews 10, what we see is despite our sin and our frustration and the struggles we have in this life. The things that come along with it, the things that scare us from entering into deeper relationships. Hebrews 10 gives us a picture of how we can get back to a closer picture of the way God intended us to live. The picture that's there. Now, I'm not going to try to sugarcoat or say that what Hebrews 10 presents is absolutely perfect and beautiful and wonderful. And it's just like the garden and there's no issues. Sin is still a very real issue. And it's not like that. But there is a picture here that says we can experience what God intended for us even right now in a fallen, sinful, broken world. And so I want us to look at that idea this morning in Hebrews 10. We're going to look at the verses we just read a few minutes ago, starting in verse 19, moving through verse 25. And this is the big picture I want us to look at and think about this morning. That I think if we're honest that we actually want deeper relationships than we often experience. We want deep relationships. We want a deep relationship with God, our, our conscience bears witness. We know that there's something more. We want a relationship with God and with people. And so this is the way I want us to think about Hebrews ten nineteen to 25 this morning. Is if that's the way we're made and that's what we're designed for, why is it so hard? Because if we're honest, it's really difficult to let people in at a very deep level. So one, why is it so hard? Secondly, what does this text tell us that we can, the steps we can begin to take to see this grow more fully? And although there's steps here, it doesn't mean they're going to be easy. It's still pretty difficult. But then the last thing I want us to consider is how can it work? What does this tell us that it can actually hold together and work the way God intended? And so let's look at those together. We're going to begin with just this question of why is it so hard to have those deep relationships that God intended us to have? And so start in verse 19 with me. Therefore, brothers, remember when we say, therefore, it points us back. We spent two weeks ago working our way through chapter 10 just saying that God is gracious. He's gracious in the way he sees you. He's gracious in uh, the the righteousness he's given you. He's gracious in your future that you have. And so he says, therefore, in light of that, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And I want you just to think about that picture that's there right at the beginning when we start, start to talk about why is it so hard? There's something that jumps out to me. If you've been going through how to study your Bible with what Wallace is doing with us on Sunday school earlier before this, talking about what does it look like? Observe and see what's there. Well, what jumps out to me is that the author of Hebrews in just a few short verses says three times that we have confidence in verse 19. And then in verse 22, he says, let us draw near with a full, a true heart in full assurance, which is very similar to confidence. Right. So be confident, have full assurance and then you get down to verse 23 and he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And so three times he says almost the same thing. I say this frequently. You've probably heard me say this if you've been here before. We say hope in the biblical sense is a confident assurance in what is to come. And so think about what he just said. Have confidence that you can have a relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. And then you get to twenty. Uh, And he says, let us draw near with a full, uh, a true heart and full assurance. So confidence, full assurance, and then a, a confident hope or a confident assurance in what is to come. And it's all because of Jesus. And I think the reason he repeats it three times in four verses to say that over and over and over again is sometimes we have a hard time believing and holding fast to that. That's what he tells us, that we can have a relationship with God that we have been washed clean, that we can come directly to the creator God of the universe because of what Jesus has done, and we can come in with full confidence because of what Jesus has done. Therefore, brothers, because I've been telling you over and over, that's what he's saying. We looked at that last week in verse 14. For a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Therefore, You can enter in with this confidence and have this relationship with God. And he's pointing us back to that over and over. And so I want you to think for a second that what is the connection when I say it's so hard, right? If we believe that it "It shouldn't be that difficult. What's so hard here to have deep relationships based on what he's told us there? And I think the fact that he keeps repeating that over and over is, is pointing us to the fact that we struggle to believe that and hold fast to that. That's why you say something over and over and over again, right? It's exactly what he does. And I think it's pointing us to this is the problem that we often have. We often fall into believing our confidence in our relationship with God is based on my performance. And I do the same thing with other people. If I let you in and you know everything about me and all that's going on in my life, you won't really like me all that much. You go, man, he's a mess. He's got all kinds of issues. I don't want to hang out with him. Right? And so we, I think that's why Facebook is so popular. I can put a lot of pictures of me smiling and all my kids smiling and they're always dressed nice. Right? Every picture that's on there, they're always getting along and hugging each other. Right? Like that's what's really happened at my house all the time. And so the picture that we struggle with deeper relationships is we often fall into believing that it's based on my performance. And so when we talk about full assurance that we have in Christ, if you talk to someone who's not a believer, who's not sure what they believe about Jesus, not sure about this idea of grace saved through what Christ does for us and nothing else, and you begin to talk about full assurance, I am certain in my hope and my future because of what Jesus has done. At best, that's usually uh, a little off-putting. At worst, it's just downright offensive. I've had people say that to me. You mean to tell me you know that you're going to get to spend eternity or you're going to go to heaven is what they often say. They go, yeah, but it's all because of Jesus. I'm a hopeless sinner. I could never do this on my own. It's only what Christ has done for me and nothing else. And you know what the reply will be? You think you're better than me. You go, wait, what? I am a hopeless. It's because we filter everything through oftentimes this idea of like uh, comparing, comparing to other people. Well, you think you must be better than me. No, 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 no. That's not how this works, right? That's how we struggle with grace so often. Undeserved merit, right? That's why when we have a good day, we feel like God loves us more. And when we have a bad day, he's really disappointed. and He doesn't love us quite as much. That's because we're basing it on what we do versus on God's grace. And so we struggle with that in all different ways. We struggle to make it about us. And so what happens is it's very hard to enter into those deeper relationships with one another. Because if I get deeper with you, you're going to start to see that everything's not all together. And so we we operate that way oftentimes. Go back to Genesis 2. They're naked and unashamed. Everything's great. What happens at the beginning of chapter three? They sin. They ignore God. They rebel against what God told them. Don't eat from this tree, which is God was just saying, trust me. I know how my creation works better. And they decide not to do that. What's the very next thing that happens? They go and they get clothes to cover up and hide. You can't see all of me now. Right. That's exactly what we do. If you knew all of me and you knew what was going on and you saw all that, you would go, oh, you won't like me. That's not going to work. So I will just post pictures on Facebook and put my thoughts in there and you can interact with me at arm's distance and I will never let you get too close. I'll choose a church where I can slip in the back and slip out and no one will ever stop and ask me anything more deep than how you doing today. Which I'll always say yes to and smile. Oh, great. And so we do that oftentimes because the, the, the struggle of, of comparison, of seeing it in those ways, putting it in those terms. If you knew all about me, you wouldn't look, maybe not like what you see. And so the picture that's there is that's out of step with the way God's called us to live. That's the way, not the way he made us to live. He made us to live loving one another in close community together. And so I want us to think for just a second about how we move into a fuller picture of what that looks like. And to be honest, when you start talking about sharing what's going on in your life, in your heart, and what's happening, and where things aren't real good, the idea of now I'm going to tell you how you can step into relationships like that, that's terrifying. Is it not? To let somebody know everything you struggle with and everything you're going with, all that you have in your life, that can be really, really scary. And so I'm going to give you some steps to get us there. And they may sound really scary, but then I hope as we get to the end, I'm going to tell you why you can do this and why it works. And so just start with the steps that it tells us right here. Look at what it says in verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting the meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I'm going to give you the giant insight here, right? Be ready for this. To be in deeper relationships with other people, you have to spend time with other people. Sometimes the most obvious things we miss. That's what he says. Don't neglect spending time together. Don't neglect meeting together. Now, I think the connotation of this passage has to do with gathering together for worship. Right? We know in Hebrews that they're struggling with their identity as Christians. They want to go back to the old Jewish temple, their old way of doing things. The author saying over and over and over, don't do that. There's persecution coming for being a Christian. So it would be easier here to just say, I'm not going to meet together with other Christians. I'm not going to go to their gathering. That would make more sense because then it's easier and I won't be associated with that. My life will go easier. He says, don't do that. But I think there's something much deeper than just gathering together here on Sunday morning as vital as that is that God calls us to gather together and sing and pray and take communion to see the gospel and baptism to encourage one another to hear the preaching of God's word. And they're absolutely vital. I'm not in any way saying they're not, but I think this goes much deeper than just that. Look at what it says in verse 19, the way he addresses this. Sometimes we miss the most obvious thing. Therefore, brothers, okay. It actually means brothers and sisters if you take it most literally. But therefore, brothers and sisters, and then look at what he says in verse twenty-one. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. I'm just going to stop there for a second. The word that he uses, the author uses when he talks about the house of God, is oikos, and it means this: it means a family or a home. And so he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, remember your home, your family, that Jesus is the head over and do not neglect meeting together. And he tells us and calls us to those deeper relationships. But I want you to think about the picture that it paints there. When you become a Christian and you are now in Christ and the spirit is indwelling you, this is now your family. He says, brothers and sisters, right? the, the home, the family that we now have with Jesus is our head. And I want you to start thinking about what that picture looks like. To be a, a healthy family. I think my family, my kids and my wife and my family is fairly healthy. Both mom and dad at home. We love our children. We pray together. We spend time together. We're by no means perfect, but I'd say it's a fairly healthy family. Now, what if I told you that my family met together for an hour on Sunday morning together to check in with each other? We came here. Or she said, Hey, how are Joanna and the boys doing? You go, I don't know. I haven't seen them in two weeks. I'm hoping to see them this morning for an hour. You say, like the worst dad ever. What's wrong with you? Right? What's wrong with your family? But yet we treat our family of faith like that. There's statistics that say really, really devoted believers today come and gather together twice a month. That's the really, really devoted. And so I start to think that picture is not what he calls us to here. Right? He says, brothers and sisters, with your home, what this looks like, don't neglect meeting together. But then look at the way he says it. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And we start to look at what that actually means. It actually means to irritate, incite, to prod. You've got to spend so much time together that you're actually kind of getting into everything. If you grew up with brothers and sisters, you know exactly what I'm talking about. My brother Jed and I played basketball together like every day our whole life. And it almost always ended in a fight. Right? Somebody making a shot and talking trash. And then, right? I remember at my awards banquet in high school for basketball, my coach stood up and said, I thought they were going to get in a fight every single day talking about me and my brother. And you know why? Because we wanted to be really good. And if he did something dumb, I would tell him. Right. Or vice versa. He'd say, quit shooting so much. And I go, pass me the ball, idiot. Right. That's what you say to your brother. Now, the reason was I thought I was going to make it. It's going to make us better. And I knew I could say that to him. And he's still going to love me and I'm still going to love him. And that's the way you do with your brother. Now, that's probably not a real good picture of what we're getting at here. Right? (laughs) Two high school boys. But I will tell you, my brother Jeremiah now calls me and he says, uh, Johnny, he calls me Johnny. I don't even know why that's the case, but he calls me Johnny. and He says, Johnny, uh, are you loving your wife? Are you taking her on date nights? Are you praying with your kids? How's your thought life? And he calls and he asks those questions and he pokes and he prods because he knows that I won't be offended That I know that he loves me, that he can say those things, and I know he wants my best. And so he calls to stir me up to good works. He says, I'm going to ask those questions and I'm going to speak into those things. And he can because he's my brother and he knows that. That's the picture that it tells us we're supposed to live like. That's what it's supposed to look like. We're supposed to stir one another up. We're supposed to get involved so much with each other that that's what it looks like. And so the picture that it calls us to is much more than just that. Verse 25, it says, Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as the day is drawing near. And I was kind of taken aback as you look at that word, encourage. And it does mean to teach and to instruct to comfort, but it also means to admonish, to correct. It's actually oftentimes used together, admonish and comfort. You know, what? How does that work? Admonish and comfort. And I feel like I'm starting to get a better idea of what that actually looks like. Hopefully that's starting to take root in our community groups. And as we meet together, as it happens around the table, this happened not that long ago. I'm leaving my job and I'm starting a new job, and I'm worried about my finances. I'm anxious about this. So you can ask Sean Imhoff, he'll tell you. I say this frequently. Lovingly, he told me last week that I say it quite a bit. What are you not believing is true about God when you're anxious about your job? And what happens around the table is people go, "Well, Jesus says be anxious for nothing." That God knows your circumstances, that He's in control of them, that He loves you. And so we admonish that maybe we're not trusting that God is in control of this, but then we encourage one another by going, He is. And He loves you. And He's at work in this. And He's walking with you. And then we get to pray for one another. I think that's starting to get at what this means. That I would share and I'd be open and we'd be able to speak truth into those things that we're dealing with. And that doesn't happen. I'm tell you, I don't think it can happen. It certainly doesn't happen when we come here every other week for an hour. It's not what it looks like to be a family. It's not what God has called us into. And so when we talk about this and we say that you may hear that, that idea of sharing where you're anxious or where you're struggling or where your sin is and go, man, that is terrifying. Yeah, that's great. That's great. You may may be sitting right now and going, hey, that's great. I'm never coming back to this church. (laughs) I'm never going to a community group here. That might be scary to think about it. And so the last thing I want us to consider is that is hard and that's difficult and to step into that and begin to live that way. But what does it tell us here that shows us that this can work and there is an answer to it right here? Go back to verse 19. Therefore, brothers, right? Therefore, what we talked about last time, God is gracious in every part of your life. Since we have the confidence to enter holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he's opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. What is the key to every single one of those verses? It says it's all Jesus. Right? Your heart has been sprinkled clean, and it's not based on your works, it's based on what Jesus has done. You can be open and honest, and you can step into these things because of Jesus and what he's done. He's the one that's faithful. So you go, man, this is really hard. And how does this ever work? How do we ever begin to step into this thing? It's because we continually point one another. To, it's not us. It's Jesus. Yes, you've made mistakes, but God accepts you and loves you completely. And it's all Jesus and nothing else. That's the answer. And so when we gather together, it's not, hey, you need to do better. It's a Jesus has already done it all, and we now get to live this way in Christ. Do you see the difference? He calls us to do that, and it is terrifying, and it can be scary, and it's scary when our hope is in ourselves and what we do and not what Jesus has done. But as that begins to change, my hope is found in nothing less. We sing those words. Then Jesus' blood and His righteousness... When that begins to happen, then suddenly we get freed to actually be honest with people and have the gospel applied to every area of our life together. It's what it looks like to stir one another up. It's not stir and poke and prod and then go, oh man, you're a mess. It's like you're a mess just like I'm a mess and you need Jesus just like I need Jesus. And that's what he calls us to just because he is faithful. It's because he is the one. And so we continue to point one another to the fullness of what it means, what Christ has done for us and for each other. And we continue to remind one another. You get to the end of that and it gets to uh, makes me think of the ends of Psalm 139. We'll end here this morning. One of my favorite passages, if you've ever read that before. It really describes a lot of what we're talking about. Psalm 139, David says, uh, where can I go that I get away from you, God? And then he goes through this list. I go to the depths and you're there. I go to the mountains, you're there. And then it's like, oh, no. Right. He knows everything. And he's everywhere and he sees all of it. And it's like a panic almost. But right in the middle of Psalm 139, he says, but there your right hand is to guide me. You're for me. And you love me. And God's proven that to us in Jesus. And when we begin to see that and that begins to take root, you get to the end of Psalm 139 and it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. How does it work to be able to open up and live that way together and begin to point one another to Jesus? It's that. That you see that God loves you, that he is gracious, that he is for you. He has ordained other people to be in your life to help you to follow him more fully. And when that happens and you realize that your identity and your worth and your acceptance is all rooted and grounded in Jesus and nothing else, you can then begin to live that way. Which if you go back to Genesis 2, that's the way you were created to live. We were made to be in close, intimate relationship with God and with one another, all for his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you show us reality as it is, and sometimes that's hard. Sometimes that rubs us the wrong way. I pray that through your spirit that you would lead and guide and correct and teach us this morning, that you would point us more fully to what it looks like to lead, uh, to live following you in all things, to gather together, to be intimately involved with one another, to be uh, caring for each other and stirring one another up and encouraging each other. I pray that you'd give us opportunities to do so, and as we do, that we would step into those. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.